Will Cody, and I'm the RUF campus minister at Austin P. And every time I get the opportunity to come preach here at CPC, we have been going through the Epistle of James. Uh, if you want to turn there in your Bibles, if you have one of these blue Bibles here, it's on page 1012. It's in the back of your Bible. You'll find it, James, back there. Um, James is written by the half brother of Jesus. His name is James. And he writes to a community of struggling Christians. This is one of the, er this is the earliest epistle that we have in the New Testament. And today he is going to tell us about this trial. We've been going through these different trials in James. And all these trials are meant to make us more like Jesus as we face them. These are trials that everybody, every Christian faces. And he wants us to endure the trial and come out more and more like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Today is the trial of the tongue. So we're going to read God's Word, chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, and then we are going to pray, and then we're going to go through the text and see what God has to say to us today. This is God's Word, James chapter 3. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also, though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives? Or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. Would you pray? Because we, we need help to understand what God is saying here. Um, Father, we pray that you would, by your spirit, open our minds, open our hearts to receive what you have to tell us today, and that you would set us free from sin and set us free to finally serve you with our tongues. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So one day in 12th grade, um, I remember sitting in Mr. Pettit's English class, taking an exam, and I don't remember what the exam was exactly on, but Mr. Pettit, as he often did while we were taking exams, he left the room. And as I often did when teachers left the room, I turned around and furiously started copying the answers from one of my friends that I didn't know the answers to. Then I turned back to finish the rest of my exam, and Mr. Pettit eventually came back, and I turned in that test. But something happened that day in 12th grade 
um, that I still remember. I remember reflecting on what I had done and what I had done many times in school and thinking, who am I? I had this like moral existential crisis <laughs> and it was very uncomfortable. But I was like, who is the real Will Cody? Is he the one that is reflected by what he wrote down on that exam and turned in? Or is he the one that's reflected uh, when he turned around and cheated and lied and turned in that test that does not, ref does not reflect what I knew? There was some idea in their mix that, like, this is a sin and I shouldn't be doing it. But this is, like, somehow deeper than that. Like, who is the real me? Because the one reflected in the grade book, the one that Mr. Pettit saw, the one who would walk across the graduation stage in a few months, is not a real person. I made that person up. It's a veneer. It's not a real person. So who is the real me? My 12th grade self wondered. <laughs> well, apparently the real me cheats and pretends someone else's work is their own. And if that's not bad enough, I started taking this a step further. If this is who I am, if I'm fake and I lie, is there actually a real solid person here? Or am I just this composite of lies and, and <laughs> deflections? And um, it was just this absurd, irrational place that I had put myself into where I was starting to lose kind of a sense of who I really am. So that got really uncomfortable. So I just decided... I mean, this wasn't like a high moral thing that I did. I was like, this really uncomfortable. I'm not, do I'm not cheating anymore. <laughs> I don't want to face these questions anymore. So I decided not to cheat anymore. And, and if I got a D minus or if I got a C, at least that would be the real me that's getting that grade. And I don't have to wrestle with these questions. Uh, maybe you've had some moral existential crisis like this before with something else. Maybe you realize that the, your actions reflected a you that you didn't want to be. James, in our text, presents a crisis, a trial, if you will, that all Christians experience. Everybody here is experiencing this, the trial of the tongue. And James says when we experience trials like this, they, they're hard, but we're supposed to count them joy because in these trials is where we become more like Jesus. We become more pleasing to God in, our, in what we do and what we say. But the person that you want to be, the person that you are growing into, Christian, the person that you think you are, is that the same person that is reflected in your words and in your speech? James has already written earlier in this book that we are to be um, slow to speak, quick to hear, and we are to be, you know, hair trigger listeners when it comes to talking with people. That's our first response. But what happens and what are we supposed to do when we are, when we do open our mouths? What's that supposed to look like? Um, there are three points in this text I want to highlight as we answer that question. The big idea that will bring this all to a resolution is that God gives grace to the humble. And because God gives grace to the humble, we are able to confess the power of the tongue. That's our first point. We're going to see the power of the tongue. We're going to see the problem of the tongue. And then we're going to see the taming of the tongue. What does that look like for our tongues, our speech, to be tamed? So first, what is the power of the tongue? Let's start in the first section in verses 1 through 5. We're just going to go through James and see what God says to us. James starts off this text with the most obvious place where the words someone says are of the utmost importance, those that are teachers. He says, not many of you should be teachers because you are going to be judged with more strictness. Now, why does he say this? It's um, you probably had this similar experience. It is seared into my brain some of the things that teachers 
and others in authority, especially when I'm younger, but even still today, people in authority, teachers, it's seared into my brain the things that have been said to me, for good or for bad. I remember when I was in college, I did that thing where you visit your elementary school and go say hi to your, all, all your teachers, and I saw Mr. Gaelic. He was my sixth grade teacher. He was a big personality. He was really funny, great, great teacher. But it struck me when I was talking to him how um, I was just one of hundreds of students that he had had over the many years and how small I must have been in his memory. And at the same time, how large Mr. Gaelic loomed in my memory, in my life, of what it was like to be in elementary school, and how influential he was, and still kind of was inside of me, as that's how it works. James puts forth the most obvious role like this, like Mr. Gaelic had, where words matter. Teachers, even teachers in the church, especially teachers in the church, people whose tools are their words, and he says that they will be judged with more strictness, more strictly. Not because they say the wrong information. If you read the rest of that text that we've been reading, this is not about saying the wrong information. That's obviously not what this text is about. But those in authority, like teachers, um, leaders, they're invested with great power. And they should know, going into this vocation, um, that people listen to you. They take in, they take you in. They take in your words, they take your words very seriously. And it can have such a major effect, and I don't think I have to tell anybody here, either positively or negatively on people's life. They can set the course of someone's life. So they should control very strictly what they say. They should sweat the small stuff when it comes to speaking. You may, as I've been talking about this, be remembering something a teacher in a school, maybe a teacher in a church, or someone in authority said to you one day, and that either excited and encouraged you, um, it affirmed who you were and where you were going in life, or m- maybe what they said brought a kind of death into your life. That's the kind of authority that teachers are vested with, and leaders, and people in authority. James is taking this example of teachers who have such authority and power, and great responsibility and influence, and he's applying it, in the rest of our text, to y'all, to everyone, to me, to everybody. This is true in this concentrated way for teachers, but it's also true for all of us. We have been invested with so much responsibility every time we open our mouths and talk to someone, every time that we send a text, every time we post on social media. It's just kind of crazy when you think about, you know, how communication works. You thought about this much at all? But my, what's happening is my ideas, my thoughts, my opinions, my feelings— I'm able to communicate, to transmit this into your eyes and your ears, into your body, and into your soul, and into your heart, and I can actually affect you. We can affect each other with our words directly. Now, that's kind of crazy. Think about, for example, um, surgeons. Like, I have a friend that's a surgeon, and they get paid to go into people's bodies, right, and mess around in people's bodies. How much training does a surgeon have and a doctor have? Um, my, I have a friend that's a surgeon. He, after high school, that was his halfway point of education because he had 13 more years before they would let him go into somebody else's body. <laughs> that's how long, that's how much, and it's intense, hard training for 13 years before they'll let him go into somebody's body all by himself. But God has given us the ability to directly 
touch people's souls. And I know your soul has been touched in good ways and bad ways. We also have that same power with other people. How crazy is it? How, how powerful is that? And how much power and responsibility have we all been given here when it comes to our speech and our words and the way we use our tongue? James goes on to what this leads to after pointing out the power of the tongue a little bit. He goes a little deeper in the next verses, starting in verse 2. He says that with this power, we all stumble in many ways. And if any person can bridle his tongue, he can control the whole rest of his body. Now, when James talks about stumbling here, he's not talking about accidentally calling someone by the wrong name. He's not talking about mispronouncing Worcestershire. I think I got that right. Shoss. <laughs> Google it. It's Worcestershire, according to the YouTube. But when he says stumble, he means, he doesn't mean mispronouncing. He doesn't mean forgetting someone's name. He means speaking evil, stumbling from the path of following Jesus in our words. He paints two parallel pictures here in verses three and four. Um, he's got a picture of a horse and a picture of a ship. And notice, both of these are big, and both of these are powerful. They're bigger than the humans that are controlling them. They're strong, and they're big, and they can have big consequences if they're used wrongly. Um, he could have used, for example, like a needle and thread. Like, speaking is like a needle and a thread, or threading the eye through. He doesn't do something small. He does something big, because he's trying to show the power of our words. And he explains how with these big, these big powerful vehicles are driven by these small, simple devices, a bit and bridle in the horse, a rudder on the stern of a boat. So with a bit, with a rudder, with these small things, you can control massive, these other massive, powerful things, and you can have them go wherever you want. The tongue and our words and our texts and our posts, they seem so small, like a rudder or a bit, but the effect they have, for good or bad, is massive. It's big. It's powerful. It's dangerous. Um, I'm, when I think about this, I'm imagining, I think I might have made this up, but I feel like there's an episode of MacGyver where he's got TNT, and he's got to transport the TNT somewhere else, and it's in a crate with lots of sawdust because everybody knows. I don't know if this is true or not, but this is how they do it on TV. It's kind of a TV trope. If you, if you bump dynamite too much, it'll explode. I don't know if that's true or not. But they're taking the dynamite somewhere else in order to save somebody somehow or fix something. And um, they have to be so careful because of the wrong bump as they're winding down this mountain road. Or if, they, if it gets jostled too much as they're getting shot at by AK-47s, then this TNT will explode and destroy everything. They have to be very careful with the TNT. And that's how we are to be with our words because the tongue is so powerful. It's huge. You cannot overstate the damage, and the blessing that can be wrought with our tongues. So first of all, James wants us to recognize in these opening verses that the tongue is powerful. James is saying no matter who you are, your words, no matter who you are, they mean something to someone. They are powerful. You are reaching, every time we open our mouths, post something, all those things I've listed off, we are reaching into people's souls. This is no small thing reaching into their hearts. So with this great power, how do we naturally or unnaturally use our tongues 
for good or for evil. Look at the second half of verse 5 through, through verse 8, because this is the problem of the tongue. There's a problem. This is our second point. James says that the tongue is meant for great and good things, but instead it does what? It starts forest fires in our social circles, in our families. It stains the whole body. That means that you end up looking terrible as you use your tongue wrongly. You look bad. Every time we say, you know, talk junk about someone or to someone, we look bad too. And even the whole course of yours and others' lives are set ablaze by using our words wrongly. This might sound a little over the top at first. At first this sounds like, really? Really? But it helps when we realize a little more deeply the, the problem of our tongues, when we realize what our tongues were made for. I think we are all desensitized here to evil speech. We're all desensitized to uh, poisonous language. I think we're all just, just desensitized in this culture. Here, here's the standard, okay? Here's the standard. Consider our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what our tongues were for. He was the only person who ever used his speech, his ability to reach into people's souls and hearts the way we were meant to. How do we see Jesus? When we read about Jesus in Matthew and Mark, Luke, John, when we see him interacting with others, what do we, how do we see him using his words? We see Jesus used his words to speak truth to people. He used his tongue to lift up the brokenhearted. When he spoke, he exposed and condemned injustice and wickedness, especially by powerful people. He glorified his father at all times in everything he said. When Jesus was reviled, when people spoke evil to him, he never spoke, never spoke evil back to them. He brought healing and he brought wholeness with his words wherever he went. This is what our words are supposed to be used for. This is what our tongues were made for. Now, there's a section, this is a little, little inside baseball, but there's a section of the larger catechism, which is a document that our church subscribes to, uh, has questions and, and answers about different subjects. It kind of takes all these Bible verses, puts them together, and then summarizes them. And one of them is uh, Larger Catechism 144. It's talking about the Ninth Commandment. And it's a very helpful summary of what our tongues are for and how are we, how are we to use our words. Um, read along with me. This is what our tongues are to be used for. And by the way, I updated some words that were kind of old-fashioned. I made them new-fashioned. Uh, this is what our tongues are used for. Um, our tongues are to be used to express a charitable respect and admiration of our neighbors. That's everyone around us. Um, our tongues are used for loving, desiring, and rejoicing in their good reputation. So we should be happy with their good reputation. We hear good things about them. And speak toward it. Um, sorrowing for and covering of the places where they are weak. So places where people fail, they mess up. We don't shout it from the rooftops. We help them. We, we don't want that to get exposed. We want to help them to save their good name. We want to use our words to defend them, even when they are weak. Freely acknowledging of their gifts and graces. Seeing the places where God is at work in them and saying, I see that. That's encouraging. Thank you for being who you are. Thank you for trusting in Jesus. Thank you that you are you and that God is working in your life. Defending their innocency. A ready receiving of a good report. That means when somebody gives a good report about someone, they're rejoicing in it. And an unwillingness to admit of an evil report. That means when we hear gossip and rumors, we, we shut that down. Um, discouraging gossips, those that reveal secrets, flatterers, 
and those that damage others' reputation. We're to discourage those people. This is what our tongues are meant to be used for. Um, if I could summarize this down even more, um, we are to be truth tellers. We are to be hype men for our brothers and sisters. We are to be hype women. We hype them up to them, to others. Um, we should be talking behind people's backs. We should be talking to their face about the great things that we see in them, about the great ways that we see God at work in them, about the courageous, beautiful things they've done, the courageous, beautiful things, they, the person that they are and they're becoming. That's the, if you think about it this way, this is what, that up there and what we've been talking about, this is the fence and here's the playground and God's put us in this playground and here's the fence and God said, inside this fence, you can play, you can say whatever you want. Go to town, have fun in this fence. Outside of this fence is death and poison. Inside this fence is you can play and say whatever you want because this is what our tongues were made to do. This is why we were created, this is what we were made to do. If you're wondering today, if you're wondering later this week, what is my purpose? What am I supposed to be doing? Here's part of the answer. To use your words to defend, up, defend and build up and encourage and love people. We, you know, with our kids, we don't really tell them what words they can and can't say. Maybe I'm a bad parent, probably. But we don't really tell them what words they can and can't say. But what we do tell them is, whatever words you use, don't hurt people. Don't seek to hurt people with your words. Love people with your words. This is the fence that you can just go to town at. And it seems so easy. It seems so simple. It seems so, gr this is great. This is good. I, I was talking with somebody earlier this week, and they're like, the Bible's a bunch of rules. I was like, but they're great rules. <laughs> it's not a bunch of rules. It's a story of God saving sinful people. And the rules that are there are great life-giving rules. These are good rules. Problem is, I can't even do what I tell my kids to do. <laughs> this simple thing, I cannot even do that. My tongue is a restless evil. No human can tame my tongue. It loves to blow up other people. It loves to blow up myself. I remember in elementary school, there was this one kid in my class, Corey Slate. This, kid, this guy was a madman. It was like second or third grade. He was like new student. It blew, he blew our, all our minds one day on the playground. We were on the playground. Corey Slate, um, he, he goes outside the fence, which blew my mind. First of all, I didn't know you could do that. I didn't know that was a possibility. <laughs> <laughs> then he goes across the parking lot, and we're just like going like this. Like, what is happening? He goes across the parking lot, and <laughs> at this point, the teachers see him. Then he crosses the road, <laughs> and then he starts walking into the neighborhood next to our school. <laughs> And I just remember my mind was blown. Whoa. My mind was blown. I was like, ah, what is he doing? Um, that's my tongue. <laughs> that's your tongue. It sees a boundary, and it wants to just go cross it farther than, it's, farther than you've ever gone before. Even though we've, I've been over this with my tongue over and over and over again, <laughs> it still loves to just run outside of that playground. But the problem gets worse. You know when we were talking about the horse and the ship? Did you notice the other characters that I left out conveniently to bring up right now? Um, who is directing the rudder? Who controls the ship? The pilot does. The captain does. And who is controlling the big old horse? It's the rider. And who directs and controls your tongue? Who is it that gives the final say on the words that come out? Who is the one who gave the okay to your thumb to send that message? 
Who is the one that inspected that post on your wall or Instagram or what are you doing on social media? The thing that you're sending into the souls of other human beings and say, yep, we're good with that. Let's send it out. <laughs> the source of the evil, the source of the poison, the commander-in-chief of the tongue is me. The commander-in-chief is you. You're the writer. You're the captain of your words, of your tongue. James describes this dynamic in the next verses, starting in verse 10, um, with some, I love James's absurd, irrational images that he loves to use to show what it's like when we sin. It's absurd, and it's irrational. Imagine a spring of water in the desert, and it, take tur- it takes turns producing fresh water, and then salt water, and then fresh water, and then salt water. What kind of spring is this? You wouldn't even know what to call this spring. Is it a freshwater spring? Is it a saltwater spring? Imagine a fig tree. Imagine a fig tree, and its essence is to be a fig tree. But then, one season, it starts producing olives on a fig tree. Is it still a fig tree, even though it's acting like an olive tree? <laughs> what is it? It's irrational, it's absurd, it doesn't make sense. Imagine this huge vineyard. Its essence is to be a vineyard and produce grapes so we can make wine with it. And then one day, this huge vineyard starts producing figs instead of grapes. Is it still a grapevine if it's producing figs? What kind of tree is it now? (laughs) What James is getting at is similar to the existential crisis, I guess, that I named at the beginning. Your nature, if you have been born again, if you have entrusted yourself to Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, your essence lead, is to bear fruit for him. Your essence as a new creation is going to lead to bearing fruit. Like, you want to bear fruit for him. You naturally bear fruit for him. This is your essence. You are united to Jesus. Your spirit is united to him by the Holy Spirit. This is who you are now. And at the beginning of the day, And at the end of the day, you are producing fruit from this new nature of yours that loves Jesus, that loves God. One of the things that fruit looks like, that fruit that we produce for God looks like, is beautiful, life-giving speech from our mouths. This is your nature. This is what you do. This is what we want. This is what we naturally produce for him in response to what he has done in living and dying and reigning over us living for us, dying for us, and reigning over us. And on paper, ideally, this is what should happen. There's no reason that this shouldn't happen. But irrationally, absurdly, ridiculously, frustratingly, because this is how sin works, we find the fruit that we actually grow is more like uh, durian. You guys ever had durian before? It's the worst fruit in the world. It smells like sewage. It's terrible. (laughs) I couldn't get myself to even taste it because it, it smelled so bad. It smelled like sewage to me. So instead of this life-giving fruit that we are to produce, just ridiculously, absurdly, this sin leads us to producing this sewage fruit, <laughs> durian. It poison, we produce poison, poison that goes into the souls of other people. It's absurd. It's irrational. It goes against who we are, objectively who we are. And frustratingly, this is where James leaves off in this section right here. (laughs) Here's what he's gone over so far. Our tongues are powerful, and despite Christians having a new nature that desires to please God, we have this massive power that we have, and we use it to poison. We use it for evil. 
even if we desire it, even if we desire it, no human being, no mere human being can tame the tongue. So what are we going to do? What does James want us to do with this information? It almost feels like he's got us trapped. I feel trapped when I read this. Well, if you're not a believer here and you realize that you're trapped, if you realize that uh, what your tongue was actually made for and how far short you've come in using your tongue to glorify God, there's good news for you, believe it or not. And if you are one who trusts in Jesus and you realize how you are producing durian fruit instead of beautiful words, there's good news for you too. Our last point is the taming of the tongue. How does the tongue come to be tamed? If no human can tame the tongue, then who can tame the tongue? Now, James, here at the, the end of verse 12, which is the end of our text, he goes on, we're, next time I'm up here, we'll build the pressure some more, but James is building the pressure, building the pressure, and then finally, he relieves us in chapter 4, verse 10. He tells his readers this, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. So James is like showing us, he's not giving us guilt, he's showing us the guilt that we have for, the, for our words and our misuse of words. Get this heavy burden of guilt for our words. And James says that Jesus will lift you up as you humble yourself before him. As, you humble, as we humble ourselves before Jesus. Now, what does it mean to humble yourself before the Lord, before Jesus? First, let's talk about who this Lord is that we are to humble ourselves before. It might be good to know who that is before we humble ourselves to him, right? Today's Palm Sunday. If you're not familiar, Palm Sunday comes one week before Easter. I think this got mentioned before. And it is when the church remembers when Jesus, the king from the lineage of King David, rides into Jer to Jerusalem, which was his royal city. He's the king, and this is his city. But he didn't ride in on a big war horse like he could have. He could have come to Jerusalem. He could have come to this whole world with a legion of angels and destroyed everyone, and it would have been his right, because we have messed this world up, messed each other up so badly. Instead, he rode into Jerusalem, the city of his throne, on this awkward, untrained, young donkey. I just imagine him like, you know, the opposite of riding in on a war horse. This king did not come to destroy its people. This king did not come to the city to destroy its people for their sins. He came to Jerusalem to save these people from their sins. And five days later, he would die on the cross for them. And not just for them, but for anyone who entrusts themselves to Jesus, he takes, as Jesus is alive right now, by the way. He's in heaven, and he, demand, he requires, he, what's the word I'm looking for? He deserves everyone to entrust themselves to him. Not only is he the rightful king, he is the humble king. And if you entrust yourself to him, he takes all of the punishment for all of your sins, even the sins of your mouth, all their sins, past, present, and future, and he makes you right with God. I, we've been going through Leviticus normally. Pa uh, Pastor Richard's been preaching on it. And what's the whole point of Leviticus? Uh, he, Pastor Richard said it many times. How does a holy God live with a sinful people? How does a holy God live with a, sin a sinful people? That's what Leviticus is all about. And that's what Jesus is all about. A making uh, sinful people right with God. 
That should have been you and I that were punished on the cross just for, just for the guilt of our lips, much less our bodies, <laughs> the sins of our bodies, the sins of our eyes, the sins of our minds, the sins of our hearts. We don't even talk about those today. And he did this for bad people like me and like you if you trust in him. Um, I had a, there was a, we had a neighbor over yesterday and we were sitting at a dinner table, a girl, a little girl, and um, we were talking about Jesus, and I said, who does Jesus love, bad people or good people? And she said, good people. And I said, no, bad people. Jesus loves bad people like me. Jesus loves bad people. This is who Jesus came to save. This is the one, this one, Jesus, is the one that James tells you, tells us, to humble ourselves before. He's not some tyrant. He's not some taskmaster. He's not going to, as we confess our sins to him, he's not going to blast us with his words. No, this is ne- that's not the picture of Jesus anywhere in the Bible. Humbling ourselves, that's the, that's the one that we humble ourselves, and it's to say to this God who has come in the flesh and saved you from the punishment you deserve, I'm not my own anymore. I give up my autonomy. It's all yours. Every area of my life is now yours. Take me over. My speech, my time, my sexuality, my money, my ambitions, they are all for you now. Generally, this is what it looks like to humble yourself, humble ourselves before the Lord, before Jesus. Now, what does it look like? That's kind of general what it looks like. What does it look like on the ground, in the particulars, maybe, when it comes to the things that we say or don't say? How does it work out in your life? First of all, when it comes to our tongues, realizing that we can't just say whatever we want, that leads to death and poison and decay. You are now a humble subject of this humble king. That means sometimes, you be, maybe in the middle of a sentence, you just stop talking. because you, <laughs> There could be some awkward moments that come out from today. You're in the middle of a sentence, you're like, oh no, what am I talking about? And you just stop talking. <laughs> Say, I'm sorry, I got to stop talking right now. Um, maybe there are certain people in your life that that irrational part of you wants to uh, there's something about that person that that irrational part of you is like, oh, I can really spill some poison with this person about this other person. Maybe there are certain groups of people, maybe there are certain people in particular where you are more prone to have an untamed tongue with. Um, what does it look like? Maybe praying before you talk to that person, maybe talking to that person about that dynamic that you all have, which is so poisonous. So we can't just say whatever we want. We have to be very careful with it. It's worth sweating the small stuff, I said earlier. It's worth sweating the small stuff when it comes to our words. Secondly, we stop making excuses for our words. Instead of, instead, we own our words. It doesn't matter, like, how tired you are. We've all probably heard these excuses before. I'm sorry I said that I was tired. I'm sorry I said that I was frustrated. I'm sorry I said that I was in a bad mood. It doesn't matter. You still said it. Basically, what we're saying when we make these excuses is that I can tell you whatever I want. I can say whatever I want to you if I'm tired or frustrated, and you're just going to have to deal with it. And who is back in control of the tongue at that point? Not Jesus. It means instead of making excuses, we just apologize. Own up. If you can own up to Jesus for, oh yeah, Jesus, all my life is a mess, and it's all my fault, then we could be able to apologize for being harsh with our spouse, being harsh with our kids, right? We have this huge thing. My whole life is trash, <laughs> We can say to Jesus, we can say to our people on the ground here, I'm sorry. If you've not had to apologize, for example, in the past few weeks, if you have not had to apologize for your 
um, speech. I wonder if there's maybe a place where you're not humbling yourself in this area before Jesus. This should be something, especially the more you talk, the more you're re- going to have to apologize. We, there should be regular apologies and coming to someone and admitting what we've done. And you know how God responds when his people wander and stumble and forget and start acting like they're saltwater springs? We, in, our, in our call to worship, we all said it together. The steadfast love, his steadfast love endures forever, right? What, what happens when you're full of sin and get stains all over you from all the crud spewing out of your mouth? He, what does he do for the, this community here for, that James is writing to? He writes them a letter. He reminds them by the Holy Spirit who Jesus is and how they are to humble themselves before him. And you know what happens when you listen to his words and remember what Jesus has done and just humble yourself before the Lord and you give up your pride, you give up the ownership of your tongue and your speech before the Lord? This is the Christian life. This is the rest of your life. For the rest of your life, to greater and greater, genuinely new degrees, he bridles your tongue. No human can bridle the tongue. Jesus does. because We give it up to him. And we become more and more like him, which is your delight, isn't it? Let's pray. Father, thank you for teaching us and reminding us about the tongue. This is something that I feel like we regularly need. I know I do. Um, Thank you for not just leaving us out here to just defile ourselves and each other, but you teach us and you bring us back to Jesus. And we pray this. We thank you for this and show us this week places where we need to humble ourselves before Jesus when it comes to our speech. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.